So I want to take a moment now to thank the Digital Hub because they are the main sponsors for this season of InspireFest, the podcast. The Digital Hub is in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin city. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. We get to touch base with lots of other tech companies here, which means it's a nice think tank. Norman Houston is my name. I'm one of the co-founders of Bizimply, a workforce management software company based in the cloud, targeted specifically at retail businesses and hospitality businesses. You can find out more about Norman and lots of other innovators at thedigitalhub.com. Now, back to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to InspireFest, the podcast. My name is Claire O'Connell and I am your host for this season. I was lucky enough to get to meet Anna Matronic backstage at InspireFest. You will know her, of course, as the female member of the rock group Scissor Sisters, but like there's so much more to Anna. She's a DJ. She's worked with all sorts of legendary artists, but she's also very interested in robots. Her first full-length book is called Robot Takeover, 100 Iconic Robots of Myth, Popular Culture and Real Life. And we got to have a really interesting conversation with her about robots and the future. Let's hear from Animatronic. My name is Animatronic, and I am a member of the band Scissor Sisters. I am a broadcaster, um, host of Disco Devotion on BBC Radio 2, and the author of Robot Takeover. So, Anna, maybe we can talk a little bit about robots and how, mm. you, you know, you, you like to mash things up. You said it yourself. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about how, how your interest in robots grew. I mean, you're an mm. artist, you, mm-hmm. you're, you're studying all sorts of things. Where did robots come into it? It, um, When people ask me that, I find it difficult to answer because robots have always been there. And um, uh, it started when I wasn't even three yet, seeing the first Star Wars film. I credit a big part of it to C-3PO reminding me of my father. My father was a persnickety gay man who was all about protocol and loved shiny things. So. C-3PO was very inspirational to me. And then uh, The Bionic Woman in the 1970s, uh, which I later started watching religiously when I was in college studying anthropology and sociology. Yeah, at that time in the 90s, everybody was making zines, uh, little magazines, which was for those of you too young to know what a zine is. It's what people did before Tumblr. Um, (laughs) And um, it's what people did before they had websites. Um, and uh, it was a self-published magazine and usually it was about bands this was the height of the grunge era and stuff like that so I dated a guy who had a zine about monorails mine was about the bionic woman and um, the bionic woman really sort of 
brought together my love of science fiction, 70s culture, nostalgia, feminism, and what I grew to learn as transhumanism, I didn't have the word then, um, that's really, that all sort of started to gel in the, in the 90s. And um, Jamie Summers, I sort of painted in my zine as the herald of the coming technological age and the union of the opposing forces of science and nature. And even then, I believed that technology was not something to be feared. It was something to be embraced and that through it, we can shatter shatter the boundaries that, uh, that are imposed upon us and become better, stronger, faster versions of ourselves. <laughs> and did you do like myself and my sister used to do with the tennis ball and try Oh, totally, in the phone book, yeah. trying to rip the no, phone book into. we never stop the car with our sandal, thankfully. My, I didn't have the wedge heels at that point, which I think is really crucial. Yeah. It's really, yeah. really crucial the to stopping. Ball. The tennis balls in our house got a fair like squeezing. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. I told you I watched it religiously. Um, and I, my religion playfully painted the caring and compassionate Miss Summers uh, as a, it's the sort of muse and messiah. She's the union of opposing forces of science and nature. She's the embodiment of the future and a herald of the coming technological age and a reminder to never lose your humanity in the face of it. And, um, I, I painted each episode as a study into a greater state of being, and I encouraged uh, my readers to watch and emulate our bionic heroine in an effort to become spiritually bionic. <laughs> uh, but even then, back in the early 90s, before I had even heard the word transhuman, I believed in technology, and I believed that technology was not something to be feared, but something to be utilized to take humanity to the next level of existence, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Any converts? Anybody want to know more? Yeah, I didn't have many back then either. Um, so, it, but it was in Portland, I started performing uh, at, at a place called the Paris Theater, and um, it's downtown in the Burnside Bridge, and a drag queen by the name of Betty Bomber maxed out all of her credit cards to secure the lease. And she put together a troupe of drag queens and real women called the Paris Girls, and uh, we, we did regular shows. And this is where my love of theater and music and dress up all came, came together in this beautiful art of drag and burlesque. And I was a member of the show, and because of my prowess on a microphone, I became the MC. And uh, for Halloween that year, I decided to dress up as a robot. Shocking, I know. Um, and I was doing a number for our Halloween show, and I, I was describing my movements to my friend Michael. And, um, and I was saying, oh, I kind of want to do you know, it's this sort of like malfunctioning animatronic mannequin. And as soon as the word animatronic came out of my mouth, we both looked at each other and we said, oh my God, animatronic. And that is how animatronic, that's how Anna Lynch became animatronic. The greater, stronger, faster, 21st century drag queen super heroine version of myself that stands before you today. Um, <laughs> thank you. 
So, I mean, uh, you're interested, I think, in how robots can allow us to explore boundaries. Definitely. Real robots let us do that by things like, you know, we send rovers to Mars because we can't Mm. go there and we see what happens when they do things. You're interested in how fictional robots can do that, too. For sure. Yeah. So tell us a bit about a few of the sort of iconic robots that you've written about in your new book. Sure. Um, I am. I what I found a lot in, in reading the stories about robots uh, was that we tend to tell the same story over and over again using them. And whether it's a story about, you know, a, a robot helping someone through a crucial time in their life, like um, Big Hero 6, or they are here to destroy us, like in Terminator, uh, we just tend to tell the same stories over and over again. And it encompasses all the fear Uh, that we have about technology and it also talks to us and tells us the story of the notion of personhood. When you read something um, that was written in the the 1960s like Stanislav Lem, the Siberian, he in it refers to humankind as pale faces um, which is obviously not true. Humans are not exclusively pale. So the, the notion that robots came from pale people is obviously problematic. It's obviously Eurocentric slash racist or racist adjacent (laughs) and um, is very much a product of this person's mind and time and time frame. And the, the notion of personhood in 1962 when Stanislav Lem wrote this, a person was a white man. This notion is expanding so much more. Um, In my book, there are no fictional robots that are black women. So a character like Maeve in uh, Westworld, played by Tandy Newton, is boundary destroying and shattering and and groundbreaking in a way that is so important. I think also the Channel 4 show, Humans, has been such a great depiction of robots and robotic people. And it is such a great representation of robots as people. There are different, there are different sized people, there are different colors, different nationalities, and that is, um, I think, really, really important to the representation of personhood that, that robots show. You know, I think probably one of the most enduring, there, there are two really that stick out in my mind as being very enduring. The characters of the replicants from Blade Runner um, I think everybody can can identify with Rutger Hauer at that very end scene where he talks about what he's seen and that that all that consciousness, the witnessing that he had and that he he uh, he was a part of, was going to be lost like tears in the rain, and that is such an enduring image and such as something that everyone can can recognize and hold on to and and. Um, and identify with. Another one is Data from um, Star Trek The Next Generation, who is constantly trying in sometimes funny, sometimes kind of tragic way of trying to realize who he is as a person. And I think we can all relate to that sort of like stabbing at something you think you might be good at and it doesn't quite land and you sort of feel like this sort of fool or a clown in a way. And everybody can relate to that. So I think that those, you know, those stories are incredibly important and very, very enduring. And, and there are going to be 
we're gonna we're gonna actually meet people like that. <laughs> it's, it, it's going to exist. Look at the stories that we tell about robots and examine the spaces that robots occupy in our storytelling before they start occupying spaces in our society. We have an opportunity in this moment to be prepared for the arrival of mechanical and digital people. And I believe it's our responsibility to be prepared. When robots do occupy space in our society, when robot rights and robosexuality is not something that's spoken about in an episode of Futurama or in The Matrix or in a lofty transhumanist essay, when it's actually here, we will be forced as humans to take a look around and examine how well we have done with the rights of our fellow humans. And if we don't do that before the robo-demonstrations start, we are going to have problems, and not just with the robots. So this coming AI revolution provides us an opportunity and a responsibility to recognize and address the inequalities that exist on our planet, and to use our technology with the best intentions, to allow us, in the process of becoming more bionic, to actually become more human. Otherwise, what reason do we give the robots not to take over? And what about real robots? You mm. know, robots are coming into our lives now and they're being programmed based on current biases, current thinking. Is that, is that going to be a problem down the line? Well, robots are a reflection of the intention of their creator, for sure. And I think what I find in, in my research about, about people who are making thinking machines um, is that they're really, they're really trying to create a mind that teaches itself. And that's the thing that's daunting and terrifying and you know, the, the source of endless speculation by science fiction writers. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. The one that I look at a lot is there's a, there's a robot called Bina48, who is the most advanced conversational robot on the planet. She is uh, a doppelganger for a real woman named Bina, who is the wife of Martine Rothblatt, who was the creator of Sirius Satellite Radio and OnStar, if you ever get in an accident and you press that button and someone's there. Martine Rothblatt uh, is, the, is the creator of that. And Martine Rothblatt is working on brain emulation software. So at some point, we can upload our consciousness onto a machine. And so she's made a copy of her wife. And this robot does interviews. And people talk to this robot. And the robot, there was one interview where the robot looked outside and was looking at Bina in the garden and saying, I know I'm supposed to be Bina and I'm supposed to eventually take her place someday, but that's a lot of pressure to put on me. I'll never be the real Bina. And so we like, we actually have robots talking about their feelings. Like, though, that's a lot of pressure to put on me. And, um, and we have robots that are kind of really starting to understand that their place in this world or their intention. And it's just, that kind of thing is fascinating to me, and it will never not be fascinating to me. It is something that we kind of can't really know what's, you know, we can't really know what sort of biases ro robots are going to have. Um, 
we can think about them based on the biases of their creator, but a robot mind is something that we we really it's it's the same thing as having children. If we were so afraid of, you know, things that we can't control, we'd never have children. And I think robots are the same thing. It's it a a a brain is is really just a, a construction of cells and synapses and we don't know how we became sentient or how we became reasoned thinking beings. We only know that this certain matrix was set up and somewhere in between all these firings came things like emotion and love, caring, compassion, empathy, um, religion, and the, the, the rush of emotion attached to a smell or a sound. Um, so we don't know where those things come from. We don't know where emotion sits in the body. So how can we say that a mind that we set up won't also formulate those things. You mentioned you studied anthropology. Mm. Do you call much on that now? All the time. <laughs> I mean, every time I go out on uh, stage is an is a exercise in um, sociological uh, awareness. You know, you have to be aware of what's happening in the group. Yeah, definitely. Um, I find it very, uh, very handy. It's a handy... Uh, skill to have. I one of my one of my sort of spiritual teachers has a motto, uh, which helps me a lot, which is rise up and see things from above. And I think sociologists and anthropologists kind of have that sort of ability or are taught that ability to kind of pull back and look at things from a broader view. And so I try to do that on the regular. <laughs> do you think that's something we should be encouraging our younger? kids to learn how to do even in school a lot of people talk about bringing more philosophy into school the school mm. curriculum mm. is that something we should be doing more of i i don't i don't see a problem with it i think education in general has to start changing to address the technological issues that our society is facing um i think in from what i've noticed in the uk um, in, in Europe, the education systems are really starting to address the fact that we're going to need people who know code as well as they know English, um, that that technological age is coming, that you know industries that now support human workers might not support human workers when our children enter the, the workforce. So we have to prepare for those. We might not have taxi drivers in 10, 15 years. So we have to prepare for that. And we have to address also uh, the inequalities that, those, that that will shape. When we have a technological workforce, where does that money go to? Does it go to the company? Does it go to the people who make the robots? Is it redistributed uh, in the community? Um, there are going to be so many questions about how we function as a society with all of this new technology. Whenever I have conversations with people about technology, I, I try to challenge where they're coming from because a lot of people will say things like, oh, you know, uh, isn't it awful how much time we're spending on social media and not spending time uh, with each other or that, you know, technology is really taking away uh, from human interaction and I said, that's, you can look at it like that, but let me tell you that you are taking an ableist point of view by saying that, because the minute you talk about somebody with 
uh, social anxiety, crippling social anxiety, somebody with locked-in syndrome who cannot do anything but move their eyelid. All of that stuff goes away. All of that immediately goes away because finally for so many people, I have, a, I have a really good friend with a debilitating stutter. He can't talk on the phone. So texting, social media has transformed the way he communicates with his friends. And so that whenever anybody talks about the bad parts about technology, I immediately try to come in and reframe that argument. Uh, what do you think are the, the risks and opportunities in robotics? Oh my god, there's so many. I mean, it, you can pick just one specific field of robotics. Here's one, weaponry. What are the risks in, in robotic weaponry? Autonomy. There should never, ever, 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 ever be an autonomous robotic weapon. There should always be a human being looking through that camera. There should always be a human finger on that trigger. So giant risk. That is one of the ways that the Terminator could happen. <laughs> Opportunity. Uh, no more people dying in battle. No more maiming. No more, no more disabled veterans coming home with, with limbs that are gone. And if they do, the opportunity to have those limbs actually work in a beautiful functioning way, which is another fantastic aspect of robotics that I don't even get into, which is prosthetics and exoskeletons and those sorts of things, which are gonna completely recontextualize ability. We're gonna, I mean, they just had the first, uh, what was it? It's like the cyber games where um, it was about like, people who are using technology to, to enhance their performances. And so those sorts of things are gonna continue to happen. So yeah, lots of risks and lots of opportunities. <laughs> Anna Matronik, mm. thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So as you can see, we had a lot of fun and really interesting conversations with Anna Matronic. Some huge issues there. I think I was processing that one for days afterwards. Moving on to the next episode of Inspire Fest, the podcast, we are keeping with the theme of music and we'll get to talk to composer Emer Noon, who has worked on the music for some really iconic video games like World of Warcraft. And she's just, a, it's really fascinating to find out about the creative processes at work there. So be sure to listen back to any episodes that you've missed. We have lots more still to come. We will get to meet people like Matt Flannery, Neve Shaw, Anne-Marie Tomczak from Mashable, Trish Scanlon, who's an innovator with voice technology. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Leave us a review if you can on iTunes, because that will help even more people to find us. If you want to find out more about InspireFest, be sure to check out InspireFest.com. This episode was produced by Bureau. I've been Claire O'Connell. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget, folks, that InspireFest 2018 is on June the 21st and 22nd in the Borgosh Energy Theatre in Dublin. So do go along to InspireFest.com and check out the speakers, book your tickets and come along because you won't regret a minute of it. There are not only the super speakers on stage, but also wonderful people go to Inspire fest and there's a lot of events and it's a huge amount of fun so come along so it was like it really made me feel really good because like i'm walking out today and i'm just like no yeah i can actually take up like i can take over the world if i wanted to so it really lived up to his name yeah inspired